our world. Nobody truly knows where it came from or how it got here. Of course, we all have our own opinion of what or how it happened. Everything from a bunch of chemicals that happened upon each other and blasted us into a planet perfect for us all to live on to it being the work of perfection of our creator. Nobody knows exactly when this happened or how old the world actually is. Some say millions of years, while others argue that it's only a few thousand. The inhabitants of this old world, through the many years of their existence, have lived through and witnessed some pretty unbelievable historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from serial killers to weird creatures that show up and destroy their lives. The worst creature of them all, though, just might be man himself. I, being born and raised in the Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond the pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. This old world outside of these mountains has seen its share of it as well. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey around the world for we seek out things that are not always as they seem, and history is not always as what we've been told. I guarantee it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is World of Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Howdy there, my good friends. I hope you're doing well today. Thank you once again for tuning in to the world of murder, mystery, and legend. We all set aside days where all we want to do is relax and take it easy. If you're like me, most of the time that I I can manage this world away comes on a holiday when I'm off from work. Those are the times when we might break out the grill and throw on some burgers or hot dogs and just sit around taking it easy. Some of us might plan a little getaway with friends or family just to get out of the house for a spell. One thing that I know I used to never hardly think about was falling victim to some nefarious individual who might want to do me harm. I think that most of us are pretty secure in what we do in our day-to-day life, but as we all know, awful things do happen, and the heck of it all is, a lot of the time those who do it get by with it, such as our case today. You may have heard of it. It's called the Indiana Dunes Mystery. Now, the Indiana Dunes mystery took place during the 4th of July weekend in 1966 in the Indiana Dunes State Park, which is indeed located in northern Indiana along the Illinois border. What's Indiana Dunes State Park, you might ask? Well, in 1926, after a 10-year petition by the state of Indiana to preserve the dunes, the Indiana Dunes State Park opened to the public. The state park is was 
still relatively small in size and scope, and the push for a national park continued. In 1949, Dorothy Buell became involved with the Indiana Dunes Preservation Council. The efforts of Miss Buell resulted in a Save the Dunes Council in 1952, but the struggle didn't end there. A union of politicians and businessmen wanted to maximize economic development by obtaining federal funds to construct the Port of Indiana. Hoosier politicians and businessmen were eager to, eager to exploit the economic prosperity promised by linking the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean shipping lanes by way of the St. Lawrence Seaway. In light of this, Save the Dunes Council President Dorothy Buell and council members began a nationwide membership and fundraising drive to flat out buy the land they desperately sought to preserve. Their first success was the purchase of 56 acres in Porter County, the Cal's Tamarack Bog. In the summer of 1961, those fighting to save the dunes began to see greater possibilities for hope. Then-President John F. Kennedy supported congressional authorization for Cape Cod National Seashore in Massachusetts, which marked the first time federal monies would be used to purchase natural park land. President Kennedy also took a stand on the National Lake Shore, outlining a program to link the nation's economic vitality with a movement of conservation for the natural environment. This program became known as the Kennedy Compromise in 1964. The Kennedy Compromise entailed the creation of a national lake shore and a port to satisfy industrial needs. Then Illinois Senator Paul Douglas spoke tirelessly to the public and Congress in a drive to save the dunes, earning him the title of the third senator from Indiana. In 1966, Mr. Douglas made sure that the highly desired Burns Water Ray Harbor and Port of Indiana could only come with the authorization of the Indiana Dunes National Lake Shore, and that's pretty much where it stood at the time of this case. It was a hot summer day on Saturday, July 2nd, 1966, when Ann Miller, age 21, got into her car and went to pick up her two friends, Patricia Blaw and Renee Brule. Both were 19 and were from the Chicago area. Ann had become close friends with the other two women after meeting Patricia and Renee, who were already close from high school, at the stables where the three of them kept their horses. After collecting their friends, Anne began the hour's drive to visit the Indiana Dunes State Park. Anne and Patricia had visited the area on the shores of Lake Michigan the week prior and enjoyed the visit so much that the, this time they wanted to take Renee along with them. After a brief stop along the way to buy some sea sun cream, and the three of them arrived at the beach around 10 o'clock in the morning. The combination of Hot weather and a holiday weekend made it a busy day with almost 9,000 people lumbering the beach that day. Almost, or amongst the visitors were a young couple, Mike Yakalusa and Francis Cicero, who set themselves down beside Anne, Patricia, and Renee, not knowing at the time they would become key witnesses to a very baffling case. At around midday, the young couple watched as a trio entered the water in their swimsuits, leaving all their items behind on the beach, laying right on the beach towels. The couple soon saw the three women in the water talking to a man on the boat. 
Well, then they climbed out of the water and boarded it. Folks watched out for the for this type of thing. Some of the most evil people in history used boats to lure their prey to them. So they would notice something like that. As the hours passed and the sun started to set, so Mike and Francis began packing up to leave. That's when the two realized that the three young women hadn't come back. All their belongings were still sitting there. They noticed a purse, pack of cigarettes, car keys, money, and clothes. The couple decided to hand in the items to the park ranger, Bud Connor, telling him that they last seen the women boarding a boat. Mike and Francis would days later describe the boat. They stated it was approximately 16 to 18 feet long with an outboard motor, white in color with a blue interior, and had three hulls. The man was described as being a white, well-tanned male with dark hair and a, in his 20s. A hunt for the boat several days later proved completely fruitless. The U.S. Coast Guard estimated around 6,000 boats on the lake that day, and the description of the man could have fit any number of young men on the lake that day. It was like trying to find the right needle in a stack of other needles covered by yet another pile of needles. It would actually be another two days before the rangers would realize that the items turned in by Mike and Francis belonged to three women who had been reported missing. The station took a, a call from Patricia Blaw's father looking for information. He knew his daughter had visited that Saturday, but Patricia and her two friends hadn't been seen since. At this point, Park Superintendent William Svetek remembered the items handed in two days prior. He saw the car keys belonging to Ann Miller amongst the items and set out to locate the vehicle. Now, back then, very few cars had anything that resembled a remote or a fob, so to speak, so it was a pain in the rear end to try to find a car in a busy place like that. About all you had to go on was hopefully you could recognize the type of vehicle that the key went with because they each had a distinctive shape or maybe the maker's logo on them. Rangers Fetek found the car in the parking lot and after confirming its owner, he called the police. Sergeant Edward Burke was placed in command of the initial investigation. He set about questioning staff members of the park and composing an index of the articles Ann Miller, Patricia Blaw, and Renee Buell left behind on the seashore. A search of the beaches surrounded the south shore of Lake Michigan, and the water itself was requested. Unfortunately, the delay from the women disappearing to the search taking place meant locating any clues would be nearly impossible due to the extent of visitors that had been on the beach and the lake throughout the past 48 hours. I mean 9,000 a day. I doubt you'll find anything that hadn't been run down, tr trundled under, thrown away, or even carried off. Ann Miller's car hadn't been moved since the three women arrived Saturday morning, and no indication of the women's whereabouts would, could be determined from the vehicle. Amongst the possessions left behind by the women, one article was of special interest. Inside Renee Brule's purse, officers found a note penned by Young Miss Drew, it dated two weeks earlier, that directed to her husband, Jeffrey. Renee wrote that she wanted to leave him as he 
spent all his spare time working on cars and running with the other boys. This led investigators to interview Jeffrey. He informed officers that as far as he was aware, the pair had no difficulties in the marriage. Of course, back then, men thought that they could run around and do as they pleased while women sat home waiting and were thankful when they got there. Men were pretty much ego pigs, and there were few exceptions. And it even permeates to the surface nowadays, don't it? Renee's family also rejected the significance of the letter, including that she had penned it at a moment of anger before calming down and deciding against giving the letter to her husband. On July 6th, whilst administering yet another search of Lake Michigan's shoreline, debris was recovered. Recovered. The wreckage was located, washed up on the shore, approximately three miles from where Ann and Patricia and Renee were last seen. The Coast Guard inspected reports, but uh, they found no one had reported the missing or wrecked boat. An air patrol of the encompassing area of the lake was ordered, but no further debris was discovered, and more importantly, there was no trace of the three women. Divers also found nothing at the bottom of the lake in that area. Appeals were made for information on the three women, which led to numerous claims of sightings. Callers from Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, and Chicago all said that they'd seen the women since their disappearance on Saturday. July 2nd, that was. None of the sightings could be confirmed, of course. The most significant lead came from an Indiana man who had been filming on the beach that day and at around the time when the women were last seen. After watching the footage and accumulating additional witnesses, statements, two boats came of special interest. The first was the same boat mentioned by the young couple from the beach, now known to be 16 or 18 foot trimaran made of fiberglass with a distinctive three-hull design. Sergeant Burke was certain that the women had been on that boat. The second boat of interest was a 26 or 28 foot cabin cruiser. Witnesses including a lifeguard and an Indiana lawyer, informed detectives that they had seen the three women climb aboard that boat with three men. Additional witnesses supported this account. These sightings happened later in the day than the ones seeing the women on the smaller boat, which was left some wonder if the two were actually connected. One instance theorized is that the man in the smaller boat dropped off the women in shore before returning to his associates in the larger cabin cruiser. Or maybe he took them out to the cabin cruiser and dropped them off for safekeeping. Huh? Despite the best efforts of the law enforcement investigating the leads offered, there was still no trace of the girls. Some 60 years later, still remains the entire case. So what in the world happened to the women? Was it indeed a boating accident? The wreckage found three miles up the shore from where the girls are last seen makes this theory a obvious one, I guess, to point out. The women could very well have been involved in an accident in which the boat they climbed aboard got into difficulty, crashed, and led to their deaths. I've seen it happen. Despite a pretty extensive search, no more wreckage was found and no boats were reported missing around that day. The four bodies, if you include the boat owner and his 
As a side note, no men were reported missing in the area and matched the description of a man described by witnesses and no bodies were ever found. So there would be four of them, you would think. One of them would at least be found. But add to the fact that the investigators were unable to say how long the records that they did find was there and the boat crash theory begins to crumble right in front of your eyes, doesn't it? Maybe worth mentioning is an unlikely twist to the theory. It's not impossible that an accident did occur in which the boat owner survived and covered up the whole thing to avoid blame for the women's death. Now, could they have possibly drowned while swimming or something? Well, another suggestion put forward by investigators was that the three women drowned after getting into trouble while swimming. Park Superintendent William Svetek certainly seemed to believe this was the case at one point in the investigation, and it isn't hard to understand why he felt this way. Statistically, more victims drowned at Lake Michigan each year than any of the other Great Lakes in the U.S., many more than in any other four combined, matter of fact. Even though all three were strong swimmers, according to reports, Lake Michigan's rip currents and rip tides and cold waters can be a match for anybody. The question of why none of the women's bodies were ever discovered, however, does point to a little bit away from the drowning theory, doesn't it? And there's even another theory. Shortly before the threesome vanished in Indiana Dunes State Park, Ann Miller had apparently informed friends that she was pregnant. In the years following the disappearance, uncooperated stories have been alleged that Patricia Blau was also pregnant, and like her friend, the father was a married man. At that time, abortion was still prohibited. This is, has led to the theory that at least one of the women died during an illegal abortion, and the other two women had been murdered to cover it up. Helen and Frank Largo were known to offer abortions for women in need, and their nephew, Ralph Largo Jr., who shared a home with the couple, admitted to being on the beach that day. Ralph Largo Jr. matched the description of the man on the boat, so the theory is that he collected the women, took them to a houseboat or a cabin somewhere to have the abortions done. That's where something went terribly wrong and led to the murders of the other two women. There's one problem with this theory, however. Not a single piece of proof exists that points to any of it of ever happening, even neglecting that tiny fact so many other things point away from the theory as well. It seems outlandish to me that any woman would go to have an abortion in a swimsuit and not taking any clothes for after the procedure, and this is even more bizarre. Also, why would you arrange the to get picked up in the water? Surely there's a better, safer, and easier ways to do that. Maybe just drive on over to the cabin yourself. Well, we're, maybe they starting a new life. That's another theory. During the investigation, Sergeant Burke learned that all three women had personal problems. This led to the feasibility that all three had planned their disappearance from the beach that day. The letter found amongst Renee's belongings pointed toward her unhappy marriage. Ann Miller, meanwhile, had reportedly told her friends that she was three months pregnant with the child's father being a married man and suggested that she would enter a home for unwed mothers when the time came. Patricia Blau apparently had even told a friend that she was going to leave and that no one would ever find her. Months prior to the disappearances of Patricia, had said bruising on her face was due to trouble with a well-known horse syndicate. 
The horse syndicate was a criminal network involving trainers, veterinarians, owners, and riders who killed horses to collect insurance money. And they have been proven to have been killing people too. It is theorized that the women somehow became involved in the syndicate and needed to escape. Of course, for this theory to be plausible, the driver of the boat would have almost certainly had been part of the plan. Items left on the beach that day may suggest this wasn't the case. Renee Brule had $55 in checks in her purse. This would be over 400 in today's money. And Patricia Blow had $5 in her purse. Away from the beach, Patricia Blow had also just won $900, which is over 7000 in today's money with her horse in a race at Winnipeg. Those winnings were never claimed. That's a lot to leave behind when you're trying to start a whole new life, I would think. But let's not be too quick to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. They could have very well been murdered by the horse syndicate. And a matter of fact, a man named Silas Jane was a well-known, I guess for the lack of a better term, hitman. The horse syndicate were not nice people. Amongst the nastiest of the bunch was a man named Silas Jane. As I mentioned previously, Patricia Blaw had previously mentioned a run-in with the syndicate, which left the bruises on her face. The three women also had horses at the stables of Silas' bitter rival, his half-brother George. The potential trigger point most often associated with this theory is in connection with a failed attempt on the life of George Jane in June of 1965. A car bomb meant for George took the life of a 22-year-old Cheryl Lynn Rude at the Tricolor Stables owned by George when he was moving his Cadillac, or she was moving his Cadillac for him. It's been suggested that Ann Miller, Patricia Blow, and Renee Brule were witnesses to the event, and thus they were hushed in a hit ordered by Silas Jane. Silas Jane was unquestionably capable of it. In fact, Mr. Silas served a prison sentence for ordering a hit and was suspected of a many more. The hit was uh, He was sentenced for the hit in October 1970 when he finally fulfilled a promise he made to his half-brother. On his own son's 16th birthday, George Jane was killed, shot through the heart under the orders of Silas Jane. Another intriguing account also adds to the feasibility of Mr. Jane being involved. Sometimes following the Indiana Dunes mystery, Mr. Jane allegedly made a confession to a local sheriff. Although he didn't mention the women by name, he apparently did confess that three bodies were buried on his land somewhere. The sheriff took the claim seriously and began forming plans to search the premises. But before the search could start, the sheriff was, of course, killed in a farming accident. After the sheriff's death, the lead was suddenly gone and there was no search that took place. One person of interest in relation to the Silas Jane is known as a known associate of his called Ed Neffield. Mr. Neffield, who was a serving police officer, had been the go-between in the hiring of the hitman to carry out the murder on Silas's brother George. The reason George Neffield was of interest in the disappearances of the women is an insurance claim he reportedly lodged several days after the women were last seen. Officer Neffield supposedly notified his insurance company that a boat he owned 
had been destroyed in an accidental fire. If the story is true, the timing of it would make Officer Neffield a very compelling suspect, at least to me he would anyway. Despite unmistakably being a dog squeeze of a human, it was said that the evidence that exists against Silas Jane being involved in the women's disappearance is actually very little, but uh, it's been very little all along. It must also be said that a hit ordered to take place on a packed beach also seems a little bit out of the ordinary and pretty much doggone risky if you ask me too. To me, it is a good possibility that they could have drowned. As for how they all three drowned together, well, I've seen that happen too. A few times as a rescue worker years ago, one goes into stre- to distress in the water and others try to help them and Lo and behold, they all drowned. One particularly horrible incident that I do recall, a boy went into distress in the water and his older brother went in to get him. And he too went into distress and the father came to get both of them and doggone all three of them drowned. The only survivor of of it all was the mother who I thought might die of a heart attack before I could help her. So what the heck did happen? I gotta say, this one has me kind of stumped, but I'll leave it up to you because that's the way it stands for the Indiana Dunes mystery. Hope you've enjoyed hearing the story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow us, please. And like always, you'll be following Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend to get the World of Murder Mystery and Legend podcast, which runs right along with it in one podcast title. If you'd like even more episodes of both podcasts and access to the Deviant Report that goes along with it, which comes out as I collect enough stories to make an episode, consider becoming a subscriber for $1.99 a month for extra episodes of all three podcasts. Please join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another world of murder, mystery, and legend. See you then.